Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is my big day. It's 1992, and I'm standing looking out over my new school playground. It's a really small school, actually a rural Iowa school, a graduating class of what, maybe 35 kids? I'm in sixth grade, and in just the past few weeks, my life has entirely changed. But I'm ready for this change. I have to change because I have a really bad reputation in Oskaloosa. A city of about 12,000 people, Oski is, but compared to my new town, it might as well be New York City. Now, back in Oski, let me just say I really feel for my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Wilson. I made her wish for an early retirement. And as far as my devout, ultra-conservative religious foster parents, I made their life a pure living hell. But now I'm looking out over this new school playground and I see new classmates, I see new teachers, I see a new town. Ironically enough, the new town's name is New Sharon. It's a new chance, it's a new start for me. During my first recess, I was so scared, I literally did not open my mouth. I stayed silent. Little did I know that my silence would only make all of the sixth grade girls wonder who was this mysterious boy. (laughs) And then in class I would get passed a note and it was from Sarah. And I would look down at the very bottom and it would say, will you go out with me, circle yes or no. (laughs) I would grab a pencil and I would write, maybe, and I would circle that. There was another reason that my popularity was growing so quick, and that was because of Miss Brickley. Now, Miss Brickley was an elementary music teacher that we had at North Mahaska School, and she had suddenly and miraculously had a son. The kicker, I was her son. She had taken me in as a temporary foster kid until the state could find something else to do with such a troubled kid. Little did they know that Miss Brickley and I, we would form a bond. And she was also one of the only few that was willing to put up with my shit. (laughs) Bless her little soul, standing only five feet tall, and that's if she wore four-inch heels. We actually looked eye to eye when I first moved in with her. With all of this, there was only one thing that I wanted, and that was to be with my mom. Now, I knew that my mom had problems with this thing called alcohol, 
and I knew that she had other problems that I, I didn't quite understand. I was used to seeing the police and ambulance lights flickering from my childhood home windows. I saw my mom with her beautiful silk nightgown flowing in the wind. It was like a scene from the movie, except for she was standing on top of her house. I was used to running to the neighbors or spending so much time, my sisters and I, we spent so much time at the neighbors, like the Schumanns, down the street, and I didn't understand why. Why did my second grade teacher have to scrub me clean to the point where I was raw before school started? Or why did, why did my sisters and I have to jump out of my second story bedroom window just to be school an hour late? I didn't understand any of this. But what I did understand was my mom, she was my mom. She was a mom who could call squirrels, rabbits, deer, butterflies, birds, and they would literally come to her. She was a mom who was a nurse and once found a kitten drowned in a backyard pool and gave mouth-to-mouth -mouth CPR to the kitten. A mom who explored me or encouraged me to explore the entire world or my little neighborhood and bring back all the blingy things I could find and she would gleam eye to eye and she'd call me her little eagle eyes. Even when I was in foster care, she sent me cards and cards and letters and letters. She would call me every Wednesday night. Now the calls would have to be done at 7.55 p.m. because she had to get to her TV in time to watch Home Improvement. <laughs> or sometimes the calls would be done when I heard the operator say, please insert 25 cents. Again, she never missed a holiday. Even for Valentine's Day, I'd get a box of yummy gummy hearts or for Halloween, a ghost that when you walked past it, it would dance and it would say, boo. That was the mom that I knew. So now at Miss Brickley, as I have this growing popularity, I feel like not everybody hates me, but I still have to look back at what it was like for Miss Brickley. And I can only imagine what it was like when she got the word from a doctor that I only had a shorter bit of time left to live. After two major surgeries, it was discovered that I had a mass in my back that was growing dangerously close to my heart and my lungs, if not already wrapped around them. It was like having a hot water bottle inside of you, but instead of being filled with blood, or excuse me, instead of, filling, instead of being filled with water, it was filled with blood. That's what it was like inside of me. Even the University of Iowa, they didn't know what to do. They had never seen something like this. For months, I went through experimental treatments. At school, I would wear a compression vest underneath my clothes that was meant for a burn victim. I was just a kid. I was surviving. I don't even remember the life expectancy being that big of a deal to me. 
the only option to save me was in Denver, Colorado, and by Dr. Wayne Yakes, who is the very doctor who invented the surgeries that would eventually save me. Now, I still think it's pretty cool for me to brag and say that my doctors, the one who invented the surgeries that are now practiced all throughout the world, to save me every single month, I would need to fly with Miss Brickley or later on other foster parents. I would need to fly every month from Iowa to Denver, Colorado and do that for multiple years for surgeries. Who paid this? Who paid to have me saved? Well, financially speaking, it would be the state of Iowa and the taxpayers, but there were so many others who contributed too. Once when we got back from a surgery, Miss Brickley frantically called a neighbor across the street who happened to be a nurse because a hole in my back opened up and caved in where you could see the inside of my back. What about all the teachers and the staff who were on constant standby to take my blood pressure if I felt weird? All of the teachers went to my defense when I was being bullied and picked on in school because I was excused from physical education, from PE. Other kids didn't think it was fair, but these teachers knew that if I was hit in the back in the wrong way, my back could explode. And before anybody could call 911, I would be dead. I think the worst part for the teachers to put up with was my gas. <laughs> yes, I said gas. <laughs> All too often after I'd get back from a surgery, I'd be so bloated. And even with the special medications, I couldn't control passing gas. And it was not silent. <laughs> All I can say is, thank goodness, I was a little bit of a jokester. And thank goodness I had teachers that were willing to turn up the radio in study hall. <laughs> but during all of this, all of this, I still had my guiding light, which was my mom, the thing that kept me going. Every month, a social worker would come, pick me up from Miss Brickley's, drive me down to the big city of Oski, pick up my sisters, and then 30 minutes further, to a supervised visit with my mom. It was during one of these visits that I, my mom gave me a special gift. As I unlatched the case that was sat before me and I opened it up, there in sparkling gold was a saxophone. Now, I loved me some bling, as if you can't tell. <clears throat> Loved me some bling. But with this gift came a couple of conditions. Now, my mom had already called Miss Brickley and arranged music lessons. But the other condition was that I had to become one of two things. Either I could become a doctor or I would have to become like a man that, or a man that my mother had an unhealthy obsession with by the name of Kenny G. 
my seventh grade year, January 24th, 1994, is a day that I will never forget. I got a call from the school office that said that I needed to report to Miss Brickley's classroom immediately after school. I went there, and when I got there, I could see that she had been crying. She didn't say much, just that, hey, we're going to go home, and your dad or your father is coming to talk to you. When we got there, I remember looking out of this small, like, vertical window that was right next to the front door, just waiting, waiting, feeling numb. When my father got there, we sat across the table, and he, he said, Rusty, your mom's dead. She killed herself. There was only one person that I wanted to talk to, and that was Sandy Dom. Sandy was a mentor from early on in my life, like really young, just happenstance that she got involved with my life, and she never gave up on me. She never left me. I remember when I called Sandy, I tried to sound chipper and happy, but she read right through it. And I remember saying, my mom, and that's all I remember. Recently, I found my mom's funeral book, and I opened it up. I was so touched to see in there 15 plus seventh grade signatures in there. Yes, all from my junior high class that loaded up in the driver's ed station wagons and drove down to the big city to support a classmate who had just lost their mom. Now, after this, when I took to the saxophone, I mean, I took to the saxophone. Miss Brickley, she never had to remind me to practice. And maybe I did it because, you know, I, I wanted to keep my mom's memory alive. Or maybe I did it to fulfill the promise of possibly becoming Kenny G. <laughs> but with the help of Miss Brickley and others, I went on to become a full-time saxophonist playing with names and, and, and being with names I could only imagine, touring the country, the world, even doing a full-time residency in Shanghai, China. I eventually left Miss Brickley's in attempts to be reunited with a couple of my sisters in another foster home. I left that foster home shortly after, and then into another home who just opened their doors until I could age out of foster care. And from there, I went on to a lot of uncertainty. But I do know this. I know that if it wasn't for those who showed me generosity and support, past and present, I wouldn't be where I'm at. I'm one that has been said, I say this a lot, but it takes a village, and it really does. I can't, I can't think of just one single person, not just one single person who showed me generosity. 
maybe it was all those church members that when I was a kid, they would knock on our door and they knew we were in need and we'd open the door and the whole house filled with this heavenly delight that I'd, you know, all from home cooked meals. You know, maybe it was the neighbors who my sisters and I ran to and they would open their doors to us, you know, because they knew we needed help. Maybe it was the foster parents who sometimes late at night I would hear crying in their bedroom and I knew they were crying for me. Me, I mean, what about all the teachers who went above and beyond for me? Think about my kindergarten teacher who followed me for years to come. And in fourth grade, she would bring me out to my favorite restaurant, Bonanza. Thank you, love Bonanza. She would bring me out to Bonanza as long as I would make just a C plus on a paper. My kindergarten teacher in fourth grade. Or what about my fifth grade teacher who would tirelessly write and respond to my journal entries with encouraging and positive words after I would write about having a really tough day in court? I don't know. Maybe it's an Iowa thing. What about the state of Iowa? I think they deserve some props. And, and what about, you know, the taxpayers who obliviously paid to save my life? You know, that's some generosity right there. I mean, you know, what about the family, the Lowenbergs, who opened their home to me and let me stay with them, not only until I graduated high school, which is what they thought, but until I graduated Central College four years later. Oh, we got some Central fans. All right. Until Central later on. So, but what about, what about, what about that family, though, that, that did that? And, oh, speaking of Central College, what about all the professors, like Gabrielle Espinosa and so many others who showed me more grace than, believe me, I deserved? I was just surviving. I was trying, but they gave me that grace. What about my husband? And... <laughs> What about my husband, Paul, and my mother-in-law, Tammy, who have worked through 10 years of my past trauma with me? You know, finally, what about me being adopted when I was 37 years old and by a former elementary music teacher named Miss Brickley? Do you know this? I know that nobody knows how to stand on their own two feet if there is no floor. I am so grateful and thankful that I had people, a village, that was able to help me build my floor. Everybody in here, no matter your age, no matter who you are, you can be a part of somebody's village. All you have to do, all you have to do is just show a little bit of generosity. Thank you. Just going to run this 
dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.